we've been journeying through the book of Acts, we've been talking about how we are called by Jesus, called to follow him and to be filled by his spirit, called to surrender all to him and to allow him uh, to uh, use us to advance the kingdom. Uh, We've talked about all kinds of things, about being filled with the spirit, about Christian fellowship. We've talked a little bit about uh, the threat of violence and uh, uh, we've talked about uh, finances as well and giving and all these different things. And here we are today. And uh, we're going to continue our journey. If you have your Bibles, and I encourage you every week, please bring your Bibles. It's such a, a good exercise and it's great to have it with you. And um, it can be something that you can refer to a little bit later. Reading from Acts chapter 4, we're going to read the last two verses here because they set the stage for chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And so please read with me, reading from the English Standard Version, uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called the Apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the Apostle's feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and they brought a part, only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who had heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll dive into this. Father, your word is true and accurate in every way. It tells the good and the hard to hear. And truly, what we read today is hard to hear. Uh, For even in the days of Peter, when they heard of what had happened, great fear filled the church. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, I pray against confusion, and I ask that you would bring clarity. 
And I pray that we wouldn't necessarily look to the left and to the right, but that we would consider our hearts. And that we'd be real and authentic with you. Lord, would you come and minister to us? Would you come and change and transform us into your likeness? Lord, if, if you don't, truly we have a hope. But when your spirit works in our midst and in our lives, you bring everlasting change. And so may it be so we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage of Scripture is probably one of the toughest passages of Scriptures uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's a heavy portion of Scripture in uh, so many ways. It speaks about the immediate judgment of God, and it's not something that we typically like to talk about, not something that we even like to acknowledge. In many instances, we've sort of uh, pushed the judgment of God off to the side, and we sort of just assume that uh, you know, God is not participating in that manner, in that way, that God doesn't work that way. Isn't that the God of the Old Testament? not the God of the New Testament. And, and so often the temptation is to sort of breeze over this passage of Scripture, and uh, in so doing, we do ourselves a great disservice. And it's hard, uh, hard not to uh, um, apply the full counsel of God when we start picking and choosing passages that we're comfortable and not comfortable with. This passage of Scripture is somewhat about finances, but not really. That's not the heart of the issue here. Um, and, and in some ways, uh, the passage of Scripture has been misinterpreted, uh, and it's all about finances, and that's not really the core. Finances are the catalyst uh, for what God is trying to uh, instill in the church, and uh, it's the catalyst by which God um, accomplishes or, or, or executes his judgment here. We need to realize that uh, judgment is a real thing. And although we live in a broken world and, uh, and sin uh, has, uh, you know, permeated all of our world and we uh, feel the effect of sin, uh, we also need to make sure that we understand that even our actions have consequences and sometimes direct consequences. Uh, as we participate in communion week, uh, month after month, we uh, sometimes gloss over the reality that if we come to the table in an unworthy manner, there's a judgment. And Paul says quite clearly, that's why some are uh, sick among you, and that's why some are asleep among you. Uh, the idea that uh, these things need to be taken seriously, and so too does this passage of Scripture. Let's break it down a little bit here. We'll go through it verse by verse, and at the end we'll deal with some application and what's the text trying to say. I, I did want to read the uh, last two verses of chapter 4 because I think it sets the stage. You'll remember last week how we talked about how the community was filled with the Spirit of God, how they were preaching the Word of God boldly, and as an outworking of that, they were of one heart and of one mind. There was unity in the midst of the community. Now, you'll also uh, need to recognize that I think this is the first time in the book of Acts that the word church is used. There's a transitioning happening here, and, and they're becoming more organized, and they're now regarding themselves as the church, the body of Christ. 
the other thing uh, that you'll remember is that giving's voluntary. That's really essential to what we're talking about. We talked about last week how uh, in the law, you know, we're t- the, in the Old Testament, they were encouraged to give a tenth of all that they had, but it was voluntary. There was really no uh, a consequence if they didn't, in a sense, because God was worried more about the heart, and that's really at the core of what's happening here. Also note that Barnabas did. He sold his plot of land. There was needs in the community. The poor had a great need, and so he takes a, a plot of his land, uh, uh, Barnabas, and he sells it. And he brings his money, his resources, uh, to the feet of the apostles. It was likely a, an invitation to give. That's probably what happened here. The apostles, in the midst of their bold proclamation, said, Hey, listen, we have a lot of people here, and uh, there's a lot of need. Would, would, would you be able to give and give sacrificial? Give sacrificially. And last week we spent quite a bit of time as to what is sacrificial giving and what's just the normative gift that God would expect from us. Barnabas follows through with that. The implication is that Ananias and Sapphira made a commitment to the apostles that they too would help and that they would give uh, and sell a portion of their land. Notice how this starts off. It says, but a man... And it's contrasting, but who with? Well, with Barnabas. He's contrasting these two people and what has happened here. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. They sold a piece of property. I love what John Calvin says about uh, uh, the issue of giving. He says this, we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our day are content, not just, jealousy, not just jealousy to retain what we possess, but we callously rob others. They sold their possessions in those days. Sorry. They sold their possessions in those days. In our days, it's the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. At that time, love made each man's own possessions common property for all those in need. In our day, such is the inhumanity of many that begrudge to the poor a common dwelling upon the earth, the common use of water, air, and sky. John Calvin wrote that uh, many years ago, and yet it rings true. The invitation to give and to support the poor. Many in the church were on board. Now Ananias and Sapphira, they were on board only to a certain extent. They go and they sell their property. That's, that's what the text tells us. goes on to say that Luke brings some clarity. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so what's happened here is that they've made some sort of commitment, some sort of agreement, and they've uh, sold their property, and they've brought back just a portion. There was a conversation here, that's what Luke's saying, and the conversation is between Ananias and Sapphira, and they're, they're, they're talking about how should we give? How should we, what should we do with these resources? Yes, we had said we'll give it all, but should we? The word that use, uh, Luke uses uh, speaks to stealing in the Greek. They actually have an intent to steal, and that's why there's this implication, this idea that they've made a commitment, and now they're 
wrestling with that commitment, and they're wrestling with what they should do with it. And so Peter says, Ananias, when he approaches him, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to give back, uh, to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? A few things here we need to note. Peter has a word of knowledge here. He understands what's happening at the heart here. And God, through the working and the filling of his spirit, doesn't just encourage Peter, but really enables Peter to confront Ananias. The second thing we need to note is that Peter uh, acknowledges that Satan's at work. Friends, Satan is at work. Up to this point, Satan has been trying to destroy the church. And he does it in three ways we're going to see. The first way that he seeks to destroy the church is through the threat of violence. Sometimes it's a phantom fear. The fear that, 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 that there's going to be great opposition against the, the church. And we saw that when, when Peter and John uh, uh, raised up this man whose feet were lame. And, and he walks and they go in and, and the council says, Preach no longer in the name of Jesus or we're going to come down hard on you. The enemy of the church, Satan, is seeking to stop the work of the church through violence. Through violence. But not just through violence. Here, here, the enemy is at work in the heart of Ananias and Sapphira. And, the, and, and it's, it's, it's that they would be deceptive. Why? Hey, hey it's not a big deal. Uh, don't, don't tell the truth. Just, who will know? It's, it's at the heart of the matter. It's a double life. It doesn't really matter how you live. You know, just go to church on Sunday. Don't worry about it Monday through Friday. I, don't take this stuff too seriously. You'll get yourself in trouble. The temptation to compartmentalize the Christian faith, to not take God too seriously. This is the temptation, and this is the lie that Satan uh, uh, uses to help Ananias seek to deceive, not man, but God. And he's still at work today. The third temptation, and we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks, is distraction. Distraction that Satan uses to undermine the church. Today it's this duplicitous life, this double life. See, Satan came in and he convinced him. You could almost imagine the conversation, eh? Ananias sells his property. It never tells us how much he sells it for. Because that's not the issue. Money isn't the issue. It's the catalyst. It's the lie. But you could picture in your mind's eye what this would have been like. 
Ananias, come on. Come on, you, 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 you don't need to give it all. You, you don't need to honor the commitment you've made. That's, don't worry about it. It's pretty generous. I mean, you're giving 80%. Hey, this is, you're doing better than most. You can almost picture it. And thus he begins to justify in his mind his actions. And then, then he needs to get his wife on board. And so the conversation is, is begun with her. Hey, 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 come on. We really need this, don't you know? What's the big deal? Now, Notice what Peter says, because I think it's really important that we see how Peter responds. In verse 4, he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Hey, listen, wasn't it your property, Ananias? I mean, it was yours. It was, it was no one else's here. Don't, don't misunderstand. It was yours, and, and not only when it was unsold was it yours, uh, Peter goes on to say this, and and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? I mean, you had the reason. The, the issue wasn't so much how much you gave or didn't gave, give. That's not the issue. It's a heart issue. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. See, Ananias wasn't taking God too seriously in all of this. Um, he, he didn't realize who God was. Not, not even sure exactly who the Holy Spirit was. That's who uh, Peter says he lied against. And it's important to note that the Holy Spirit isn't a force. It's not energy. It's not um, um, some sort of intent. The Holy Spirit is a person. See, Ananias didn't lie to energy. He, he, he didn't lie to some force. Sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit that way. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit is the person of God. You can't lie to a force, but you can to a person. He's the perfect gentleman in every way. He leads and guides. He'll never force his agenda on you or I. That's why we ask to be filled with the Spirit. And it's upon our invitation and request that the Spirit of God sits on the throne of our hearts and leads us. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Have you not lied? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. God's instant judgment came upon Ananias for what he was doing. It was instant. It was in the moment it happened. 
great fear came upon all who heard of it. May we take heed. God is not one in whom we should ever approach lightly. Yes, God is our friend. He's our Father. Yes, God is approachable because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But may we never pull him off the throne. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God, the ruler of all never lacking in knowledge or strength or power. The young men wrapped up his body and carried it out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came along, not knowing what had happened. And so Peter, Peter pulls her aside and says to her, Tell me, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. Peter's seeking to understand if she too is, is a part of the scheme and she, she joined in. Yes, she says. Yes, for so much. I, uh, certainly, that, that's the truth. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband, are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down and breathed her last. And when the young men came in and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The judgment of God. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And what do we do with this? Friends, what Luke is trying to help us understand is that living a double life, a duplicitous life, has grave consequences. I mean, we read this text and we think, wow, wow, this is so harsh. And, and we think to ourselves, God wouldn't do that. Uh, friends, the temptation is to live a duplicitous life, a double life, to be a Christian on Sundays, to be a Christian on Sunday mornings, to be a Christian at Bible study, to be a Christian among your Christian friends. But when, when you're outside of that context, I mean, just live however you want. Uh, the temptation, friends, is to, is to never open your Bible from Monday to Friday. Never open your Bible Saturday. Never get on your knees and pray. The temptation is to live a duplicitous life. And we think to ourselves, there's no consequences for this lifestyle. And yet there is. You see... The temptation for Ananias and Sapphira was a couple things. One, to be double-minded, to, to live a life that wasn't authentic and true. That was the temptation, and they bowed to the pressure of it. 
The temptation for them was to receive the glory of giving, giving generously to the poor without paying the sacrifice that was required. The temptation was that the church would applaud them for their great gift. And and it was a lie. I have to tell you, this passage of Scripture, in many ways, terrifies me. Because... I'm far from who Christ ultimately will change me and transform me to be. Sometimes when you stand up in the pulpit and you preach week after week, people get a certain impression as to who you are based on what you've preached and the stories you've told. And and sometimes the temptation for the preacher is to start living up to that or to believe the lie that other people think about you and and yet you know the real story that you struggle as much as the next person but but that's the point see see, jesus isn't asking that we be perfect Uh, jesus isn't asking that we have it all together that's not the point of the text here uh, Jesus isn't, isn't asking us, he's, what he's saying is be real and authentic. Be true. Resist the temptation to be someone you're not. Resist it. Because the consequences are so great. You say, but pastor, people aren't dying uh, at, the, at the reality that people are living duplicitous lives. What do you mean the consequences are great? They're, they're huge. The lie is we think we get away with it. The truth is everyone's watching. Uh, your kids, they know. If you're living a duplicitous life, they do. They know. They're watching. If on Sunday you're putting on a mask and pretending that you're the Christian that everyone around you thinks you are, and they're learning that that's okay. And friends... It's not. They will follow your lead. And more than likely take it one step further. Your coworkers, they're watching. They're watching you, and if you go to church on Sunday, and you, and you go this place and serve, and you're serving in this ministry, they're watching And if your life isn't consistent at work, not that it's perfect. Own your mistakes. Don't hedge them. Apologize when needed. And admit, admit that you're seeking and a work in progress. See, they're watching. 
And the consequences are devastating. Grandparents, you're not excluded. Grandkids are watching. They're watching. And if church and Christ is no more, no more, no more real to you, they're taking note. And the consequences are devastating. See, the message of Ananias and Sapphira, it's, it's not about how much or how little they gave. It's about the duplicitous life. And everyone in this room, all of us, struggle with this. We all do. And if you don't think you struggle with this, may I warn you that you are in the gravest of dangers. And the only way through, as I know it, is through authenticity and honesty. I said to my boy the other day, it's hard to apologize. This would have been a few months ago. It's hard to apologize to your kids, isn't it? But things mount up. Life happens and we fail as parents. I said to him, we're sitting on the step, and I said, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for not, for not behaving the way God would want me to. I'll never forget what he said. He looked me in the eye and he said, Dad, you're getting a lot better. <laughs> it did two things to me. One, it made me weep because uh, he, he, someone say praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah, praise the Lord is right. That's great. One, it makes me weep because I fail him so much as a dad. But two, he knows my battles. He knows my failures. And if he can see Christ working in me and changing me, there's hope for him. Because he's going to have his own battles, his own wars. And the enemy will tell him there is no victory. But he'll be able to look and say, well, man, I didn't think you could change dad, but boy, oh boy, over time I saw it. Why do we do this? See, I think it comes back to our identity in Christ. We're, when we have a healthy identity in Christ, we resist the temptation to live the duplicitous life. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 speak about how we are in Christ. And it breaks it down in a couple things. And I'm going to do this real quick because time doesn't permit us to, to dive into this. When we receive Christ, something dramatic happens in us. You see, we are made with body, soul, and spirit. The physical is the body. The spirit is, is that which communes with God. It's dead apart what Christ has done on the cross. That's what Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. But when we receive Christ, the Spirit is awakened and alive in us. But the problem is that we, we still have the soul, which is mind, will, and emotion. Mind, will, and emotion. And even though we've been re uh, regenerated in Christ, our spirit has been made alive, our mind is still uh, uh, broken, our emotions have been uh, bruised, and our 
will still struggles and battles to surrender to the fullness of God. In the midst of all of this, we become people pleasers. We become people pleasers and we worry more about what the person around us thinks than what what God thinks. When we get our identity in Christ straightened out, a couple things happen. We start looking to him and we worry about what he thinks and we don't worry about what other people think. And then as we surrender ourselves to him, and we allow our mind, will, and emotion to be healed through the work and the presence of the Spirit, things change. Romans 12 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, know the truth, and the truth, hold on to it, cling to it with all that you are, and you will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe it is, says that it's through the presence of the Spirit that we are transformed. It's the same word as found in Romans chapter 12. I've been telling you and telling you and telling you, you need to spend time with God every day. Your intimacy is so critical. Friends, I'm telling you, I'm begging you, I'm imploring you. You need to spend time with God every day. And as you sit in his presence and bask in his presence and you hear the word of God, And he begins to transform you from the inside out. And he becomes the one who is your authority. He becomes the one that you seek to have uh, uh, his pleasure. It's all about him. We become less and less duplicitous in our lives. We worry less about the people around us and what they think. We don't seek to please them. We please the Lord. And then we can be honest even in the hardest circumstances. When the desire to to receive glory for no sacrifice, as Ananias and Sapphira did, when those desires come in, we can stand in the truth saying, no, 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 no. What matters the most is what Jesus Christ the Lord thinks. And there's no easy way there. There's no instantaneous work that happens. Every day you need to seek the Lord and be in his presence. And as the Spirit comes, He will change and transform you. As you know the truth, you will hold on and cling to it, and your mind, your will, your emotions will be changed. This is not a message about money. It's a message of the heart. It's a message of the heart. Friends, we're guilty of living a duplicitous life. Yet there's an answer and it's found in Jesus Christ day by day. Let's stand together. It's my prayer that you would never grow weary of me telling you you need to seek the Lord every day. That you would never grow weary of that. Because that's where the answer is. It's coming clean about who we are. It's about coming clean in our brokenness. And not hedging. But not staying there. Don't give up. Pursue him. And listen. As we pursue him. Our lives 
will bear fruit instead of the consequences of the duplicitous life. And so, Lord, you know how weary and broken we are. You know our failures and our victories. You know if we have energy to lean in once again, you are keenly aware. And so come and refresh us again this morning, we pray. For our sake, for our children's sake, for our grandchildren's sake, for our co-workers, our neighbors, our friends, everyone is watching. And they want to know, does Jesus Christ the Lord really work? And we know you do, Lord. And so come, draw us to you again afresh this morning. Heal us, we pray. For your sake, for your glory.